Lord have mercy, ladies and gentlemen, season three of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Stephen Cock Esquire, is at hand. We got a bunch of great guests lined up once again. We'll be talking some guitar. I'm sure we'll talk about food. I'm sure we'll talk about hilarity. That's just what's going to happen. So thanks for tuning in. Let's get into it. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, my old friend John Paris, Milwaukee native, but New York dweller for many years. You've seen him with Johnny Winter, frequent guest with Les Paul at the Iridium, played on stage with Bo Diddley. You name it, he's played with them and has stories about him. A great musician and a hell of a nice dude. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, John Paris. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the time has come once again. For another juicy and succulent edition of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Cockery. I'm here with an old buddy, an icon, a legend, John, <laughs> John Paris. You've seen him with Johnny Winter, with Bo Diddley, fronting his own glorious ensemble. Had a house gig at B.B. King's in New York for many, many years. He's played with every rock and roll icon we can we could possibly mention and will mention. And he's also a Milwaukee native which makes it even more awesome. John, how the heck are you? I'm alive. And that is a good I'm live on the internet. Yes. <laughs> live on the inner Google. Thank you, Greg. Great to see you and hear you. Of course, the people out there can't see you right now, but let me just tell you, folks, he looks glorious. <laughs> You're too kind. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about, well, we could talk about so many different things. A lot of stuff. But you grew up in uh, Shorewood, which is a, uh, a suburb of Milwaukee. Yeah, I, I was born in Milwaukee and grew up in Shorewood. And uh, kind of an illustrious group of individuals in, in your high school years, surrounding years. It's bizarre. In fact, uh, I've spoken with a few of my old friends recently. You know, I, with the pandemic, uh, you know, there's, I don't know if it's just me, but it seems a lot of, a lot of human beings with the with the time we have during the the pandemic it, you know we had a lot of time to get uh, nostalgic yes and uh you know it, it, when i speak to my old uh, bandmates and my old schoolmates we all talk about how fortunate we were to grow up where we did and when we did because the music we were exposed to in the, you know, we got the tail end of the 50s and, and uh, all the 60s great stuff and and on and on. And now with YouTube and the Internet, you can it's endless. You know, um, uh, just a side note, I, you know, I got to see George Martin speak uh, several years ago at, at Town Hall here in New York. And uh, he he put in words something that I'd been feeling for a long time. I remember walking into a, a drugstore like 40 years ago in, in the village and Wilson Pickett was singing Midnight Hour on the, on the PA system, on the sound system in the drugstore. And it hit me. I thought, you know, a hundred years ago, if I was in a drugstore, there'd be no music unless there was like a string band in the corner or a guy banging on the piano. And the way George Martin put it, 
100 years ago, if you wanted to hear music, you had to go to the music. That's the way he put it. Now, you know, when, when the iPod uh, hit its stride, you know, you had 10,000 songs in your pocket. You know, now you have the whole world of music, all the whole history of music on your iPhone. So it's, it's, uh, it doesn't matter where you are or when you're there or, you know, but we were fortunate in our era, to, you know, to have Chuck Berry and, and uh, Little Richard and Bo Diddley and, and Buddy Holly on the radio. And, uh, and then we got to see a lot of those guys. And, and, and then myself was fortunate to work with some of those guys. So absolutely amazing time. Amazing indeed. And you had a, you had a band in the Milwaukee area called Ox, which was a glorious power trio. Well, if, and, if you want to speak chronologically, should we do that? Or, yeah, uh, yeah, sure, please. Because I started playing drums when I was, I don't know, 14, 15. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of proud of the fact that I was playing rock and roll in bands before the, we knew about the Beatles, before right. the so-called British Invasion. And uh, only by a few months, but still, we were we were playing the repertoire that the world was playing. I mean, we didn't know it then. You know, I, we were sort of chauvinistic. We thought rock and roll was American, and nobody else anywhere in the world was playing rock and roll because we had Chuck Berry and 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 Eddie Cochran and everybody. So uh, there was an article in uh, Time magazine. In November of '63, before the Beatles were even on uh, on the Jack Parr show in November, before the Beatles, of course, were on Ed Sullivan. This was November '63, and I remember bringing the article to band practice and and saying, "Hey, you guys, here's a band, a rock and roll band from England." <laughs> you know, and and every, everybody looked at me and said, "Ah, so what? Let's practice." You know, and three months later, everybody was playing Beatles songs and combing their hair along, and it, it was like overnight. But um, you know, I had "I Want to Hold Your Hand" the single because I was intrigued by these guys, and I bought it. Radio Doctors, you know, right? And uh, you know, it had the picture sleeve with the collarless jackets with the you know the great pinstripe the silver gray jackets and we went to johnny walker's yes johnny walker avenue and we bought those kind of jackets there's pictures of us playing at a youth center in i think might have been the shorewood uh shorewood high youth center um wearing those jackets in january of 64 before the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. So we were a little ahead, you know, but that's so wild, but not ahead enough to, you know, we never made a record, you know, so that was my high school experience was playing drums in the Chevelles. And our rhythm guitar player was David Zucker, who went on to have Naked Gun and, you know, the Airplane and Top Secret and, you know, very right. successful filmmaker. And I speak to David, you know, couple of times a year we reminisce or if he's in new york we have dinner now was, was jerry harrison in your any of your band jerry was point? in the next band i was in which was the walkers uh when when i graduated high school everybody went every which way and uh you know bob metzger and i had been childhood friends and we started hanging out and uh 
he had this band with a, a great guitar player who's who's gone now, Sam Friedman. Uh, Sam played played with Junior. With, okay. With yeah. Junior in the classics when he was like sixteen, you know, and uh, Sam and Jerry and Bob Metzger was the bass player at that time. They had this band, The Walkers, and we were we were. Uh, you know, like a pseudo blues band. You know, we we loved the animals and the yardbirds and and uh, them with Van Morrison. And you know, we were just starting to realize how it all connected with the real guys, with Muddy and Wolf and Hooker and and you know, uh, it, it started to make sense. You know, around sixty six or sixty seven for me. Anyway, I mean, you know, there were guys like Jim Liven who were hip to that. You know, he and Jeff Dagenhart and some of those guys were hip to that stuff in the early 60s, you know. but uh, Now, did you go with those guys that, you know, they used to go see, you know, Wolf and stuff down in Chicago? Uh, I, I, I was a little too young. You know, I think I'm a year or two younger than Jim. And, uh, you know, and he was very, <laughs> Jim Liven, God bless him, was way ahead of his time. You know, I mean, he was doing this stuff when Butterfield was doing it. And, right. And I saw the unit, the, the, you know, the unit and the new blues and uh, um, short stuff and, you know, the Jim Liven combo, big influence on me. You know, I, I talking about the Milwaukee influences, I mean, my dream, between you and me, Greg, my dream was to be able to play harmonica as well as Jim Liven and play guitar as well as Doug Yankus from Soup. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's a lifelong thing to do either of those things because <laughs> those guys both were were really, uh, you know, phenomenal world-class talents even way back then. And, you know, it's I still get inspiration from them. And uh, so the Walkers were, were that type of band and uh, – you know, I played harmonica and a couple of tunes and our lead singer would play bass. And uh, and that was, you know, that led to the Ox because those guys were all still in high school. They were they were seniors. I was a freshman at UWM. Okay. And uh, so when they graduated high school and went every which way, um, Bob Metzger and I started the Ox Band uh, in different incarnations. But... Um, you know, it's phenomenal. I mean, you know, we had David Zucker from Shorewood and Jerry Harrison from Shorewood. And I Liven lived, his family grew up in Shorewood, even though he didn't go to Shorewood High. But uh, and my buddy Stuffy Schmidt went to Shorewood and he, you know, he dragged me out to New York in the early 70s. So uh, but the, the Ox was a, a phenomenal uh thing for the time you know we opened for the grateful dead we opened for 10 years after we opened for uh procol harem at Summerfest. you know with with robin trower on guitar and, yeah and uh a lot of great experiences you know um i mean <laughs> opening for the dead that was you know it was kind of a fluke because uh we did our sound check the promoter liked us we were pretty popular local band and we playing all over Wisconsin and, and, you know, uh, played in Illinois a little bit. And I think in Iowa, and, you know, just that Midwest thing, but um, the promoter liked us and got us on the show with the new riders and the dead. 
And we did our sound check and the dead's manager, I'm, I'm not sure who it was, but he came tearing out of the back dressing room and said, who are these guys? Get them off. The dead doesn't need an opening act. And Jerry Garcia was right behind him and said, hey, man, I heard him sound check. These guys are good. Let them play. Oh, that's awesome. So God bless Jer Jerry Garcia because, uh, you know, I'll never forget it. We did our set that, that evening, and I'm coming up. It was a high stage, and I'm walking down the stairs, and there's Garcia waiting at the bottom of the stairs. And he shook my hand. He says, man, you guys are a great rock and roll band. Awesome. You know? Now, you know, there's no photos of that. There's no video of that. There were no cell phones. There, right. you know? And I've had a lot of great experiences like that. I got to sit in with Freddie King the first year I was in New York. He played a little club in the village. And, you know, I just moved to New York and I was dying to play with anybody, especially if they were into blues. And, you know, Stuffy and I were doing these little club gigs like Max's Kansas City and the Bitter End and, you know, which was at, it became the other end at that time and Folk City and, uh, you know, Stuffy and I, Stuffy was really, really a go-getter at that time. And he was booking all these little gigs for us with me just playing bass behind him. And that opened a lot of doors for me. You know, I'm always grateful to Stuffy for, for getting me out to New York and having that happen. But, um, you know, after, I mean, the Ox was, you know, the, None of us ever recorded. You know, the Chevelles never recorded. The Walkers never recorded. Ox made a couple of demos, but never made any records. And, uh, you know, there's Metzger and I have been talking about maybe releasing these live recordings that were done at the Pelman Theater on Oakland. There was a, a great two-day sort of a festival um, trying to think when it was early 70s and you know it was ox and soup and uh, a friend of mine Barry Ullman great singer songwriter and Reed Kaling who local Milwaukee legend of sorts and uh, you know I think I think short stuff might have been on it you know just uh, if you go on Google images there's probably posters of it but uh, you know this was two days that were recorded um, you know, the band, the messengers had a, had a house just around the block from the Pelman theater. They had a full recording studio in their basement. So everything was recorded, you know, with a big remote cable to the house from the theater, you know, <laughs> really old school. And so we have some of those live tapes and we were thinking of maybe releasing them. I don't know who would buy them. We had a great reunion, um, you you may have uh, may recall uh, at Shank Hall and at Summerfest in 2011, I think. Uh, yeah, for, for the Liban thing, right? Is that yeah? Uh, well, uh, Sam Sam Friedman uh, named it the the last polka, <laughs> 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 the last waltz. But being from Milwaukee, you know, so it was it was it was uh, short stuff and my band with Jim Solberg, Dynamite Duck. And um, the Ox and uh, Jerry Harrison came and did a set. And uh, this guy, Fritz Bluebottom, did a couple of things. And, and uh, you know, we had this two-day event that Mike Kappas and, and uh, Mike Kappas, uh, Bob Dickey and Jim Charney and Ed Sassone 
drummer extraordinaire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, those guys were really responsible for pulling it all together. And uh, it was a great homecoming event. And, um, you know, we really should have had a live album to sell at that event. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. so whatever. So, so when did you get your chops together of playing the bass and the harp at the same time? Because that well, is like, that's, insane. you know, that, that's an interesting thing. How, um, how you get misinformation and it leads to something else. You know, I used to hang with Jeff Dagenhart from time to time. He had a little apartment uh, on the East side. And I remember like it was yesterday, he, he had the new cream album. When, when was that? 67, 66, 66. And he was raving about about these guys, and he said, "Check this guy out, man. Jack Bruce. He plays bass and harp, and and he, and he plays at the same time. You know, <laughs> and, and apparently he, you know, <laughs> this is another aside. I mean, I got friendly with Jack. You know, we can talk about this later, but um, you know, I asked Jack about it when I got to know him a little bit. I told him, you know, because." Uh, he had seen me, you know, we did some shows together, Jack Bruce Band and Johnny Winter uh, years ago. And he saw me play harp on a rack and I showed him the rack and everything. He said, well, I said, you used to play on a rack, right? And he said, yeah, but, you know, the band was so loud, Cream was so loud that we could never get the harmonica loud enough. You know, I mean, he never thought to put a mic on it. You know, he would just go up to the vocal mic and try and play bass and harp at the same time and and i'm sure he was great at it but you know he said he could never hear the harp so you know i even in the early days that was my motivation so it was like this mistake because you know jack when i saw cream uh i don't know if, if you've seen some of that live cream stuff where he would either play harp or bass right right you know and you know they would do stuff like train time or rolling tumbling and without a bass you know and and it worked they made it work you know but when I saw Cream live uh, at the scene in Milwaukee, um, that was, you know, like, you know, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm playing a harp on a rack and he's not. <laughs> but but, but uh, that, you know, that Ox experience of, of singing lead and playing harmonica and bass at the same time, that was sort of my going to college for the Johnny Winter gig. Right. You know, Johnny was thrilled that here was a guy who, who knew a little bit about blues and he knew a little bit about rock and roll. And he could, too, you know, I, Johnny used to say, hey, I got a bass player and a, har a harmonica player, two guys for the price of one. Right. Exactly. You know? I mean, that, he was thrilled <laughs> with that. So, you know, and I was happy to have the gig, man. I learned so much from from working with him. He was just a treasure, man. So, so if you don't mind, so Ox ends and you go to New York or was Ox still doing stuff when you no, went no, to New York? Um, Ox kind of split up mostly because of uh, musical direction. You know, I, I, we started as a sort of a, a blues rock power trio thing, a la Cream, Hendrix, Yardbirds, Zeppelin, right. you know, and, and I wanted it to carry on in that direction and bob metzger was getting really into uh the, the country rock stuff the burrito brothers and the birds and poco and you know and you know at the time 
I wasn't really into that stuff. I've come to really appreciate that stuff. And, you know, it's great guitar music. I can see why Bob gravitated to that because, you know, look who you're dealing with, you know, Rusty Young and, and uh, you know, all the great um, Clarence White. and Clarence White, exactly. You know, yeah, all, all those great country rock guys, you know, that was really challenging guitar stuff. And, you know, I, I, my love was really Muddy and Wolf and Hooker and Little Walter and, and on and on. And, you know, Stuffy, Stuffy Schmidt was, when I met Stuffy, when we were, we were teenagers, you know, he played me the original version of I'm So Glad by Skip James. You know, right. he was into the folk blues early on. You know, he was really coming from a folk music scene and, uh, you know, it was that was a revelation and you know and it was an asset to when i started working with johnny because johnny was equally into the old stuff. all kinds of stuff i mean and all kinds of blues but you know you should have heard johnny singing country tunes on the bus man i mean he he could he could sing or play just about anything right you know and i um i think i told you the story about uh, how we used to sit and tune up before we go on stage, we have a couple little practice amps and Johnny just run through some stuff and I'd play bass and the drummer would bang on the chair with his sticks or something. And uh, Johnny starts playing these beautiful jazz changes, you know, and I said, man, Johnny, that's beautiful stuff what you're doing, you know. You know, with probably not a lot of effort, you could be a great jazz guitar player. And Johnny says, oh, man, John, that's just some stuff Edgar made me learn. <laughs> you know? But it, it was you know, really great guitar playing. And, you know, when I worked with Robert Gordon and Link Ray, I remember being at Soundcheck. I think we were in Nashville and we finished Soundcheck and Link and I were just hanging out. And Link was just, you know, messing around on the guitar. And he played this beautiful chord solo version of Misty. Ah. you know, like a Johnny Smith kind of thing. And I thought, holy cow, this is, this is heavy rock Link Ray, you know, the, you know, power chord distortion tremolo Link Ray. And he's playing this beautiful guitar and he started as a country guy, you know, I mean, uh, that was his influence and uh, early on. And so, you know, it, it just cemented my, uh, my belief all along, and I'm sure you can relate to this. If you're a musician, you play music, you know, and, and I think all those old great blues musicians before the so-called, you know, blues explosions, you know, in the sixties, the revivals and stuff, they thought of themselves as musicians, not necessarily blues musicians. I mean, look at Robert Johnson's, uh, recordings you know he had hot tamales in their red hot you know that was a pop tune like a ragtime tune you know but I, i've done some studying on this stuff and it was kind of the producers and the record labels that directed all this stuff you know because they would get a, a guy to come in to record like robert johnson or sun house and they knew blues was popular and it would sell uh, you know, in the 20s and 30s. And they said, well, hey, you got any blues songs you can cut? And they would cut the blues songs. But if you would see them playing on the street or in the clubs, in the juke joints, 
they would probably play whatever people would want to hear. You know, if some guy came, you know, uh, Skip James is playing on a street corner or something, and some guy says, hey, you know this Tin Pan Alley tune? I'll give you 50 cents if you play it. He would play it for the money, you know? I mean, they were musicians working. So it was kind of a fluke that that blues became this thing in, in a way. But thank goodness it did, you know? I mean, it's the foundation of everything. You know, the, the blues had a baby. They named it rock and roll. You know, it's in country, it's in jazz, it's, it's everywhere. Indeed it is. So when you... What year did you get out to New York? Like early early seventies. Well, after the Ox broke up, um, I kind of floundered. I played with shorts. I played bass with short stuff for a brief time when Liban went to Nashville, and Joe Kelly from the Shadows of Night came in to play guitar, and and Junior kept the band going. You know, Junior Brantley. It was Junior Brantley and short stuff, and uh, I played bass, and Danny Schmidt played drums, and. Joe Kelly was the guitar player. And that was, it was great to work with Joe, a great blues guitar player in his own right, even though he was kind of a, a punk blues guy with Shadows of Night. But they were an important band for the time. And, and Ox was actually on a bill with them in Sheboygan, I remember. But, um, you know, I did that. And then, uh, you know, Jim Solberg and I had this band uh, called Dynamite Duck that it was kind of funny, but you know, just between you and me on, in a Milwaukee note, um, I think Jeff Dagenhart was playing bass. Um, uh, uh, Jeff was playing guitar with Dynamite Duck and I was playing bass with short stuff and we sort of switched. Because ah. I, I wound up playing guitar with Dynamite Duck and Jeff started playing bass with Lyman. So, ah. so it, was weird, it was a weird thing. But... Um, you know, I learned a lot from those guys, from from Dagenhart and and uh, and Leiben and and you know, a lot of them. Sam McHugh was a big influence in Milwaukee, and um, you know, I, I, I there's a great story. I don't know if I ever told you this story about that E ninth chord. You know, the E ninth at the octave, the high, the Freddie King Hideaway. Right. Yep. It's like a ninth chord with the the your little fingers on the high E at the octave. Right. And, uh, you know, you can move your first finger and make a suspension. And, you know, it's a great, great chord for, for funk and stuff. But um, I went to see Stevie at the bottom line with Johnny Winter. You know, I've been playing with Johnny for a year or two. And, and Johnny gave me a tape of Stevie that he got. And he, he knew Stevie in, in Texas. You know, he was kind of, you know, Jimmy's little brother, Stevie, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, so Johnny said, let's check this guy out. You know, he's getting a buzz, and, and, and I had heard of him. So we went down. He was opening for Brian Adams. Ah, the bottom line. So we went backstage afterward, and Stevie had his guitars sitting there, and I asked him if I could play one of his guitars just to check it out because there were these rumors. You know, he plays these gigantic strings like this, you know. Right. Like, you know, fence post wire right <laughs> strings you know and and he plays really high action and you know so i picked up that sunburst strat and and i don't know what why but i just hit that ninth chord the minute i picked up the guitar you know just to hit the, the guitar and it was relatively easy to play i think with the high action and being tuned down to e flat, uh, exactly to e flat you know it wasn't that difficult to play but stevie spun around he says 
hey, man, how do you know that chord? And to this day, I don't know if he was surprised I knew it because I was Johnny's bass player. You know, bass players aren't supposed to know that chord. Or if I was from New York, you know, only guys from Texas can know that, that chord. Right. You know, so I, so I'm, you know, I never got to ask him. But years later, I found out, you know, I learned that chord from Jeff Dagenhardt. Jeff Dagenhardt also showed that chord to Jim Solberg. Jim Solberg, from what I understand, showed that chord to Stevie Vaughan <laughs> when he was touring Texas with Luther Allison. So check this out, Greg. If, if I had, if Stevie had said, hey, man, how do you know that chord? If I'd said, well, Jeff Dagenhardt showed it to me and he showed it to Jim Solberg and Jim Solberg showed it to you. Right. You know, I mean, that could have cemented a lifelong friendship with Stevie, but you know, I, you know, we just ran into each other from time to time, and and that I was always Johnny's bass player in his mind. So uh, whatever, you know, that but, is crazy. You know, that's that's crazy tale. Guitar stuff, you know. That's why we're here, guitar stuff. Yeah, but I mean, Freddie King was a you know that the band the Chevelles that I had with David Zucker, we used to do Hideaway. You know, I mean, you know, Freddie King was and Sam Friedman had had that. Uh, dance away and hide away with Freddie King, but he had this Freddie King goes surfing version, ah. which is exactly the same tracks, but with with uh, like surf noise, audience noise clapping in the background. Ah. So that was King Records' attempt to cash in on the surf craze, you know. Freddie, can you imagine Freddie King on a surfboard? <laughs> <laughs> but he was such a huge influence. And, you know, I'd only been in New York for a few months and Freddie King was playing at this little club in the West Village. And, uh, you know, I went down in the afternoon and I got to know the band a little bit. And, you know, they found out that I was a Freddie King fan and I was a guitar player. And they said, hey, man, we'll put you on the guest list. So every he played, I think, three or four nights. I think he played a, a Thursday through Sunday, possibly. And I went every night, and I don't know where I got the chutzpah to ask him, but every night I went up to Freddie King, who was pretty imposing guy. I mean, he was, I don't know, like 6'3 and, and 275 pounds of muscle. And, you know, really, uh, I don't know where I, how I got, got it together. But every night I would say, hey, man, I, you know, I'm a fan of yours, and, and, and I play harmonica, and I know you do a lot of blues, and I'd love to sit in. And he would go, hey, cool, man, uh, come back tomorrow night. <laughs> so every night I went back, and every night it was the same thing. Come back tomorrow night, man. Hey, 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 man, how you doing? Yeah, come back tomorrow night. Finally, the last night, he got me up. And he turns to me, he says, you know, Off the Wall by Little Walter? And I, I sort of knew it, you know, and we did that. And he says, uh, you know, Walking by Myself, Jimmy Rogers? You know, I said, yeah, we did that. And I think we did one, I think we did Sweet Home Chicago and maybe one or two other tunes. And after, you know, three or four tunes, he says, ladies and gentlemen, give this young man a big round of applause. Having him up here makes me feel like I'm back home in Chicago. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and Greg, that kept me going for months. Just that stamp of approval, you know, it, it was incredible. Awesome. And once again, no video, no photos. 
you know, nobody had an iPhone, you know. Right. And and really, the only witness was Stuffy Schmidt was there that night. And, you know, I wish he had had a, even a disposable camera. But uh, say la vie. Yes, indeed. Boy, that's the stuff, though, isn't it? It's like no one could take that away from you, regardless. Yeah, you know I, I mean? guess. You know, I... <laughs> You know, I, I, I had this weird theory that, and, and they probably have the technology now, but I, I had this thing, this thought that someday you'll you'll be able to connect your elect these electrodes to people's brains, and when they imagine uh, the a scene, it'll be able to be projected so that everyone will be able to see it. And I think they have that that kind of technology now, where you know at least uh, they can detect patterns. But you know. If if I can envision sitting in with Freddie King and that experience, you know, there would be a, a way to transpose that to you and the world. Right, and, right, right. You know, and I think of my dear friend, uh, you know, I, I one of the highlights of, of New York, uh, you know, aside from the highlight of getting to know Les Paul, but uh, I got to know a uh, wonderful English guy, uh, Neville Chesters. Oh, yeah. Who, who was... A roadie for a roadie or and or a road manager for for the experience. He was with Jimmy at the scene when when he played in Milwaukee. I didn't know him then, but he also worked with Cream and he also worked with Jethro Tull briefly and with ELP briefly, and uh, he um, he worked for the Who initially before Hendrix, and Pete Townsend mentions him in his, in his biography, and. Um, Neville also worked for the Beatles with Brian. He was a gopher for Brian Epstein when he was a teenager, and he worked for uh, Robert Stigwood. So, wow. you know, and he has memoirs. I mean, if, if you look around the Internet, there's some great interviews with Neville. And he just a wealth of knowledge and a wonderful guy. And I, I was I miss him a lot. He left New York a few years ago and went back to England. But uh, we still stay in touch. And uh you know, he told me he he lived in Liverpool when the Beatles were there. You know, he grew up in London, but he, for some reason he was in Liverpool for a time. And he saw the Beatles at the Cavern. And that you know, was another time I thought, geez, if he could imagine the Beatles at the Cavern and we could all see that, you know, right. <laughs> it would be great. But, um, you know, he's a treasure. You know, I love the guy. He's you know, he's got he's got some incredible stories. Oh, I'm sure he does. You know, he said one night he was he was working for the Who, and uh, Keith Moon was having trouble with his with his hi hat. Oh, with his snare drum. I'm sorry. You know, it was and uh, Neville had to rig a a rivet to fit in the stand so it would stay in the stand and and you know while they're playing he's under the snare drum riveting in the snare stand you know and he said uh that he, it it worked for a while and then it broke down again and and moon got so mad he grabbed a cymbal and threw it at neville you know he was so pissed <laughs> off and neville grabbed the cymbal and threw it back at him <laughs> you know I, I got to meet Keith Moon at the bottom line. Uh, I went to see James Cotton, and uh, I, I sort of knew some of those guys because they had played at Teddy's, you know, right. with Matt Murphy and and Charles Cummings, and that was the blues band in the early 70s. I mean, what a great blues band, uh, Cotton and Matt Murphy and, and those guys. But I went to see them at the bottom line, and I went backstage to say hi, 
And we're just all hanging out in the dressing room. And all of a sudden, this human tornado literally comes in the dressing room. Hi, I'm Keith. Hi, I'm Keith. Going from person to person. Hi, hey, how you doing? I'm Keith. Hey, I'm Keith. How you doing? (laughs) Keith Moon. So I got to shake his hand and say hi, you know. But literally, like this ball of energy, you know, just attacked the dressing room. <laughs> Amazing stuff. So, is it when did you actually did you know Johnny before you went to New York? Or was uh, that- I saw Johnny Winter at the Midwest Rock Festival. Do you know about that? Oh, yes, I, I, I've, I've heard tell of the glory of this festival. You know, you can actually go online now. On YouTube, people have uploaded the audio to a lot of those Ooh. sets. You can hear Zeppelin's sets and Cream or cool. a, a Blind, Blind Faith set and so on. Um, well, the Ox was booked to play. Uh, we were one of several local groups that were on. And so we had carte blanche. We could go any day for nothing. And we went every day, even though we weren't playing. I think we just played one or two days. But, you know, I got to see Zeppelin. I got to see uh, Roy Gallagher with Taste. I got to see uh, um, Jeff Rotel, I think, was there. Um, Jeff Beck was there, too. Jeff Beck group, right? Jeff Beck, I don't think, played. Um, he was booked, but I don't I don't remember if he played or not. Blind Faith played. Um, uh, Joe Cocker and the Grease Band. Free was there, too, right? Was Free there? They might have been. I, I don't recall. But um, I remember seeing Johnny vividly, and he had a wall of Fender Twins. I, you know, I I can't remember if it was four. It might have been six. It was at least four twins piled up. And uh, he, they came up to the stage in a black limo, and he and Tommy and Uncle John, Tommy Shannon, got out and played. And... Uh, if somebody would have said to me, in 10 years, you're going to be playing with that guy, I would have said, you're nuts. Nah. I mean, I was a fan, you know. I mean, sure. uh, um, my friend Jim Charney, uh, who I should mention Jim Charney recorded those a lot of those gigs at the Avant-Garde Coffee House. And they have that Magic Sam album on Delmark. That's one of Jim's recordings. Okay. You know, Jim wound up being a a local rep for CBS Records and also a rep, uh, finally worked in New York for CBS for many years. And uh, Jim had that Johnny Winter progressive blues experiment, I think, the first album. And he, I was at his parents' house, and he played that record for me. And I thought, "Why, this guy is something else," you know. So I I knew who Johnny was, and I was a fan. But uh, you know, um, now was he playing the Firebird then, or that would have been that? Oh no, no, Thunder, I mean, that right? Was seventy? When okay. was that? Seventy-one? Sixty-nine. 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 Thank you. So um, no, the Firebirds came later. Ed Seelig in. Uh, in St. Louis, the, had, had Silver Strings music. He, he befriended Johnny and got him most of his Firebirds. You know, when I started playing with Johnny, he had six or seven Firebirds, you know. And, I mean, he'd only bring one or two on the road. But, you know, he had two Sunbursts and a, uh, the blonde, uh, the white the one. white one, yeah. And uh, a red one with a, uh, you know, a regular three and three headstock. Oh, interesting. You know, and... Uh, uh, he had a purple one, like uh, sort of a, 
violet purple. He had a, um, I guess it's, is it Pelham blue? Pelham blue, yeah, green, yeah. Blue green one yeah. with a beautiful inlay, like an abalone inlay on it. I, you know, so that came later. I think probably when I saw him at, at this festival, he had a, had that uh, 12 string with six strings on it. Right, that Fender. You know, yeah, exactly. I'm guessing, you know, or or, or maybe the gold. Top, yeah, he had that gold top too. He was playing around, that, and I think that got stolen. And he had a flying V at one time that got stolen. And you know, I mean, Johnny went through a lot of different guitars. You know, he he. Uh, there's pictures of him with uh, with uh, he ordered. I think he ordered new in the '60s uh, a Les Paul Black Beauty with with no middle pickup. You know, he, right, which was unusual. And he ordered a white. Uh, Les Paul custom with no middle pickup. He said he always loved the sound of Stratocaster, but he hated that middle pickup. He said it got in the way. So, you know, which is one reason he sort of got into those laser guitars because they were pickups and they kind of had a stratty sound. But, you know, but uh, I just love hearing him on the Firebirds. You know? Yeah, that was a glorious tone. You know, they were tone. made for him. You know, they, you know, great but um where were we oh coming well, in, coming in, you know i played with with jim solberg and dynamite duck and then <clears throat> i got to a point where you know between ox and and short stuff and dynamite duck and you know subbing for a few other bands around milwaukee i played most every bar and nightclub in wisconsin at least once probably 10 or 20 times and i thought you know just i just started feeling like i was going in a circle and a lot of my friends were moving to la metzger moved to la and our friend fred blifford moved to la and <clears throat> amy madigan uh fred and amy had that band jelly that signed to electra and you know stuffy's Stuffy had a deal with Paramount. He had done this record in Milwaukee and he sold it to Paramount and he got this spec deal to record at Electric Lady. So he moved to New York with his girlfriend and got an apartment in the village and he said, why don't you come out? So I, I packed up my stuff and he came back to Milwaukee to get some belongings and we drove out to New York together and I figured oh, I'll give it a try and you know, I'll live here for a few months and and you know, forty years later, I'm still right. <laughs> and uh, and I don't know if I should be thankful to Stuffy or curse him if it's a blessing or a curse because you know New York is not New York anymore. It's it's really drastically changed. Not just because of the pandemic. I mean, just it's you know a, a lot of it is greed. You know these these landlords. You know, I mean, that was one reason BB's closed. Apparently, their lease ran out and the rent went up, and and they just said we can't do this anymore. You know, and the building sits there. You know, so don't get me started. That's a whole other sign of the times thing. Yes, indeed. But the experiences I've had here are just priceless. I mean, you know, uh, especially my connection with BB's because we played in the lounge. Uh, next door to the to their theater room and uh, you know we were there every Monday and you know I've got a list here of people that sat in 
Right. You know, Joe Bonamassa and Jimmy Vivino and Pat Martino and, you know, Jerry Harrison. I think I think you sat in with us. I did. Yeah. And, you know, that was a treat. And, you know, the Uptown Horns and guys from Dylan's band and, you know, guys who used to play with Hendrix. And, you know, just I mean, it, it was just right. incredible. You know, Rick Estrin and uh, Kid Anderson from the Nightcats, you know. B.B. Uh, King's band would come over after they played a big show in the main room. They'd come and sit in with us. So it was a, just a phenomenal experience. And I, in in my little <laughs> in my little mind, I sort of made it was like likened in a in a much smaller scale to what Les was doing every Monday at at, the, at Fat Tuesdays and later the Iridium. Right. Oh, you know, he would hold court there and bring people in. And that's sort of what I did on Monday nights. And, uh, you know, I should mention my loyal, uh, sidemen. I mean, I fortunate to work with a lot of great people. Um, you know, Simon Kirk sat in with us and, you know, has done some gigs with us. Uh, Steve Holly from wings. Steve, and I did a lot of gigs together. Great drummer. And, uh, you know, my my loyal bass player friend, Amy Madden, world-class singer-songwriter in her own right, uh, has done two or three books of poetry that are published. She's got a couple of novels that are pu- published. She's got two CDs out. And, you know, she was there almost every Monday playing bass with me. And, uh, you know, it was just a great experience. I miss it, you know, but... Uh, Times change. You know, just thinking about the club scene, when I first moved to New York, I was doing a lot of these gigs with Stuffy, and it was a, a foot in the door to a lot of the clubs, you know, because uh, we would play at Home Bar, which was one of John Lennon's hangouts, and Stuffy ran into Lennon there. I never got to see Lennon, but I, I got friendly with his girlfriend, May Pang. We, we're still friends. And, uh, you know, I played with Elephant's Memory there for a while, which was Lennon's backup band. And they had a great sax player named Stan Bronstein, who was a force of nature. And I learned a ton of stuff from Stan. And one of the reasons I got the gig with Elephant's Memory, I sat in with them at Folk City and Stan called Honky Tonk by Bill Doggett. (laughs) And I knew it. Yes. And we did honky tonk and Stan turns to the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, give this guitar player a round of applause. The only guitar player I know in New York who knows honky tonk by Bill (laughs) Doggett. And about three months later, I got a call. They needed a guitar player. So I played with them for a few months. But to my dismay my frustration you know here was elephant's memory who were they were the quintessential new york rock and roll band i mean they backed chuck berry they backed bo diddley and you know they were legendary guys they backed john lennon and i thought this is this is it man you know at the time i felt like this is the reason i'm in new york you know right stan says uh you know we're getting away from rock and roll we're going to start doing more latin you know, disco was just starting to come in and Stan was a musician's musician. I mean, he, he'd worked with Tito Puente. He'd had his own big band for a while. And, you know, uh, 
it just wasn't my thing. Even though I, you know, I did some gigs like that with him and I learned some of these, these Latin tunes and merengues and, you know, it was a, just a great learning experience. And we still did honky tonk and we still played a blues once in a while. And, and, uh, you know, it was great, but so that was at home bar and at the, in the village of folk city and around, we played some clubs in New Jersey and Long Island and, and, um, you know, I kept working with Stuffy, but I little by little I started doing solo gigs, playing harp on a rack, playing acoustic guitar, and just I loved the freedom of that. And the and the more solo gigs I did, the more comfortable I felt doing band gigs because the songs were there. You know, right. I mean, once I could play a song all by myself, you just add bass and drums, and you you got the band. You know? Exactly. So that was a great experience. And, uh, you know, Randy Brecker sat in with me on one of my solo gigs because he was friendly with Jeff Kent and Doug Luban, and they had all been in dreams together. And Jeff Kent and Doug Luban were buddies of mine from that scene. And Rock, Rock and Rob Stoner, uh, I got friendly with in that other end village bleaker street scene. And he recommended me for the Robert Gordon link Ray gig. And that was really the first pro gig I, I had, you know, I mean, uh, you, you know, you know, touring around Wisconsin, it's, it's touring, you know, you're in a band with a bunch of guys and you're, you got to get to the gig on time and do the gig. I did a ton of that. So I knew what it was to be on the road. But we went to Europe for a month, you know, and we, we played all, you know, France and Germany and England and and uh, Scandinavia. And here I am with, with legendary Link Ray, man. And Anton Fig was the drummer. Oh, wild. So Rob had done the records, but he got called to play with the Rolling Thunder Review with Dylan. So he went off with Dylan and he recommended me for the Robert Gordon gig. And I learned a ton of stuff on that gig about stuff I knew about, you know, rockabilly I knew about, but I, I didn't know it half as well as, I mean, here was Link who was a real rockabilly guy and Robert was the next best thing. I mean, if you walked into Robert Gordon's apartment now, it's like walking into the fifties. <laughs> you know his his uh, his record player and his furniture and his decor and you know he is in the 50s and and uh, he embodied that and he and link really spearheaded that revival you know that led to the stray cats and sure. the rock cats and all those guys sort of revived the interest in in carl perkins and so on we interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So you're in New York, you're gigging with these guys, you're touring around a little bit, you're doing gigs as, as a solo guy. At, at what point does this Johnny Winter thing come to fruition? As, is Was it like a, a blind audition or were you recommended it was for a, it? It was a complete fluke. Um, uh, I went out one night, you know, Amy and I years ago were an item 
and we were dating and we lived together for a short time, Amy Madden and I. And we went out one night to hear music and we went to the Lone Star to hear James Cotton. And uh, he didn't have his regular band. And Matt Murphy wasn't there and, and I didn't see Charles Kelmes. And uh, Louisiana Red was playing a few blocks east in the East Village at a club called Pops. So Amy and I decided to check that out. And, you know, there was no cover there. So we, we went, we look in the window and there's Johnny Winter talking to Louisiana Red. And I, Greg, I had in the back of my mind, I went to the Lone Star thinking maybe Johnny Winter will be there because he used to hang there and he was friendly with Cotton. You know, they had just done all those Muddy Waters. Uh, right. You know, Johnny produced those Muddy Waters records and they had done some live stuff together. And in the back of my mind, I thought, well, maybe, you know, because I had read an article in Guitar Player. You might remember this article. Johnny was on the cover with the White Firebird in 60, I'm sorry, in 80, I'm sorry, 70, 73 or 4, he was the cover guy and did this big article. And I'm reading this article just after I'd gotten to New York. And I thought, you know, he's talking about the music he likes. He's talking about his equipment. He's talking about his coming up in Texas. And I'm thinking, boy, you know, I'd love to meet this guy. You know, we seems to have a lot in common, you know. I mean, you know, I really like to get to meet this guy, Johnny Winter, you know. So I had it in my mind. And when we went to see Cotton, I was sort of thinking that. And then here he is. Sitting, <laughs> sitting there with Louisiana Red. And I knew Red from Folk City because we had jammed. And, you know, Red invited me to sit with them. And then he invited me to sit in. So here we are in this little club in the East Village, me and Johnny and Red, till like four in the morning. I'm playing harmonica, Red and Johnny on guitars, no band, just the three of us. I went up to Johnny afterward. It was, you know, four in the morning. I went up. I said, hey, man, I'm a fan of yours, and I love what you do. And, you know, I play guitar, and I play bass, and I play harmonica, and I have my own band if you ever need a backup band. And here's my number. You know, I, I'd appreciate it if you take my number. Johnny looked at me. He says, hey, man, thanks a lot. I'll take your number. But I got my band. Well, I found out years later after I'm, well, months later after I'm now in the band that uh, Johnny didn't have a band. He had Bobby T on drums. Tommy Shannon was long gone. Uh, Randy Hobbs had come in. Ike Sweat had come in. But at that point, Randy had come back in the band and got sick and couldn't do the gig. So. Uh -huh. So um, Johnny invited me to come back to see Red a day or two later and bring my bass. So I wheeled my jazz bass in the case. Nobody had gig bags back then. Right. On my Pro Reverb, which was the only amp I had at the time, with wheels from the East Village, from the West Village where I was living on Bleecker, near Bleecker Street, all the way to the East Village, I rolled it on the street to audition. That was my audition. I didn't know it at the time. I thought we were just going to jam, but that was my audition for Johnny Winter. So, um, you know, 
after that night, I got called to come and jam with him and Bobby at this rehearsal studio, and I had the gig. And I and I was, you know, kind of hesitant because I mean, this is Johnny Winter, you know, I mean, legendary guy, and I wasn't sure if I was up to the challenge, but. You know, we played together, and when he found out I played harp on a rack, you know, he loved that. And, you know, so I figured I could do this and do my own band. And, you know, Johnny would work for six weeks or two months, and then he'd come home for a month. So I kept my band going when he would, it, it was a perfect situation for me for a long time. And it was one of the reasons I stayed with him, aside from the fact that I loved him as a, as a person and as a musician. But because um, you were with him for a good ten years, right? Uh, almost eleven years. I mean, there there were a few few months there where he took some time off. Uh, he he kind of just decided uh, he was having some health problems, and there were several months where he didn't work at all. But basically, it was almost eleven years, and. Uh, you know, it was just phenomenal experience. I, I learned so much. And I, did you ever get to listen to that Johnny and Edgar uh, interview on YouTube? No, I haven't seen that yet. I, I highly I recommend that to the world. It's, I mean, those guys, what they went through, and you know, it was a whole different, um, whole different time. You know, it was. Right. Uh, you know, when I mentioned that that uh, I was proud of the fact that we were playing rock and roll before the British invasion. You know, here were guys, Johnny and Edgar and, and Hendrix and, you know, uh, Clapton and, you know, Lonnie Mack and Allman, you know, right. Dwayne Allman, guys like that were playing rock and roll in the fifties. You know, they, you know, long before the, the, the Beatles and the Stones, et cetera. So, uh, you know, they had a lot of depth, those guys. I mean, they really, really learned those records, man. You know, I, was, I just relearned the solo to um, Buddy Holly, um, It's So Easy to Fall in Love. Yeah. Great guitar solo that Buddy pulled off. For that time, pretty uh, innovative solo. He plays some double string stuff and open string stuff. And... It re I realized where Sam McHugh got a lot of stuff because Sam was a knockout guitar player for that. Time. And I often think, you know, what's in a name? You know, they had the band, the legends. He was a legend, you know, and went on to play with the Everly's. So. Uh, Absolutely. So that, you know, that gig with Lincoln, Robert sort of uh, was, was a little bit of cement with Johnny because the fact that I had worked with Link Ray, Johnny, was open to that, you know, that gave me some cred. Yeah. Well, there are some incendiary performances on, on YouTube of you guys ripping it up in various different venues. Well, that wasn't me. That was my dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Jeff Beck said to me. I got to hang. I, I think I told you I got to hang with Les Paul and Jeff Beck after one of Jeff's gigs at BB's. And we're all in the dressing room. And I had this program because we had seen the Yardbirds in Chicago in like 66. And I bought a program and, and I thought maybe Jeff would sign it. So I asked him, I said, hey, man, you know, I saw you with the Yardbirds in Chicago and, and uh, I've been a fan ever since. Would you sign this program? 
So he looks at the program and with his picture and he goes, oh, that was me. That was my dad. (laughs) 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 And and so he was nice enough to sign it for me, but then he wrote the date. So it's just so people would know that he didn't sign it in 66. Right, 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 right. Like 2003 or something. (laughs) He is such an incredible, you know, you met him, you played with him, right? Uh, I didn't get to play with them, but I hung out with them for sure. I mean, incredible! You know the, that dry British sense of humor. I mean, oh, he's funny as hell. Yeah, I mean those guys. You know, and and I'll tell you when when I walked less out of the club after after that encounter, um, Les looked at me. And he says, "John, he knows all my shit." <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> you know Les had told me that he had gone to see Jeff years ago they were friends for years and he said the minute he walked in the dressing room at, at Jeff's gig all those years ago uh, you know this probably in the 60s or 70s early 70s I guess they met um, he said Jeff had his guitar in his lap and he looked up saw Les Paul and just started playing Les Paul licks. <laughs> Les told me, he said, he, he played all my stuff, man. <laughs> that is some funny. And, and, you know, he did that tribute to Les uh, on Les's 95th birthday. Yeah. I was fortunate to be with Les. I did the finale number, Greg, at, at Carnegie Hall for Les's 90th birthday. And, and once again, there's no video. There's some bootleg recordings. You know, no. There's a great photograph that my friend Joe Rosen, great photographer, happened to have taken some great photos of that night at Carnegie Hall for Les's 90th. But now um, that, that was this whole surreal story. I don't know if we have time for that, but uh, you know, I wasn't even sure I was going to get to go to that because the promoter didn't really know me and I wasn't on the bill, but. But Les, uh, when I asked Les, I said, I hear you're doing this big thing at Carnegie Hall for your birthday. He says, you'll be there. Ah, So, I mean, he, I, I got so much uh, encouragement. We all did. Any of us who got to know Les and got to hang out with him, he was so encouraging and supportive. And, uh, you know, almost, I mean, (laughs) when I first met him at Fat Tuesdays, which was where he held court early on, um, you know, I I was introduced to him and uh, Perry Margolov, who was a friend of mine, was friends with Les and introduced us. And Perry didn't say what instrument I played. He just said, Les, you should know John Paris. He plays with Johnny Winter and didn't say what. And so I talked to Les for a little bit and... Uh, you know, I told him I was from Milwaukee and I was a fan. And so, oh, you're from Milwaukee. I'm from Waukesha. You know, he, yeah. he, he, he loves us Badgers. You know, he, he he always he would always light up if somebody was from Milwaukee or from Wisconsin, or especially from Waukesha. If you were from Waukesha, he you know he would uh, yo. Know, and talking about Shorewood High School and all that, you know, all the talent the talent that that created. Les went to school in Shorewood for a brief period. No, no kidding. He told me that when his parents were going through their unpleasant divorce, he was sent to live with either relatives or friends in Shorewood. Now, there was no Shorewood High School at that time, but 
he was living with these people in Shorewood, and there was a building that was Shorewood School. Ah. So, you know, once again, you know, I always say all roads lead to Les Paul, but it's almost like all roads lead to Milwaukee. Exactly. <laughs> it's surreal. But well, I tell the story. You're the reason why I got to sit in with 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 Les out there. That was that was that great. Was, I, I'm that, thrilled that I, that I, that that worked out, Greg. That you know that had to happen. That was so. It was unbelievable when it did. And then years, a couple of years later, you know, I think Les had just passed, and one of the local radio stations, um, you know, KLH, called me up and said, "Hey, would you mind coming on on air and telling your Les Paul story?" So I told the story, and you know about going over there and sitting in and getting up there. And he looks at me, he goes, you any good? And I said, well, I'm from Milwaukee. He's like, well, all right. <laughs> and, then, and then we played something. And he's like, hey, why don't, you, why don't you turn a little bit so I can see what the hell you're doing? <laughs> and then I'm, so I'm telling the story. And um, and this this is before, um, well, cell phones, I guess, were out then, but you know, probably flip phones, right? Right. No, not the extravagant, like, you know, <laughs> in, in pocket camcorders we have now. But someone emailed into the radio station right then and there pictures of me sitting in and you on one side and Les looking like this and me in the great. middle. So I, I've got pictures of the event. Yeah, there's there's a few great. There's a great shot of you, me and Les after the the gig and you're wearing a Jimi Hendrix shirt. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're all there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. But, um, you know, to finish my little story, you know, I, I got to talk to Les that night at, at Fat Tuesdays and he says, you, you know, we talked that brief time and he, he says, you, you play with Johnny Winter, huh? And I said, yeah. He says, so you do a lot of blues, right? You know, Les was so hip. He knew all the all the guys. You know, he knew right. Beck and Clapton, and and you know, he was friends with Evan McCartney and on and on. So he knew who Johnny was, and he said, "You do a lot of blues, right?" And I said, "Well, we do almost all blues, Les. Uh, you know, some rock and roll." He says, "Do you play the harmonica?" And I said, "Well, actually, I do. You know, I, I play with my own band, and I play with with Johnny on a rack." And he says, "Well, you ought to come and sit in sometime." Huh. And that was it, you know, that, that started it. So for the first, you know, I would go down there maybe once or twice a month to hear him play. And this was the late eighties, you know, I was still playing with Johnny and, and I was, uh, you know, able to get down to see him from time to time. So, um, you know, the first few times I would walk up to him and go less, you know, you asked me to come and play harmonica and sometimes he would get me up, and sometimes he wouldn't, and sometimes he'd come up to me afterwards, oh, man, I'm sorry, I, I forgot you were here. Come back next time, we'll get you up. But for the, for I, probably the first three months, he would go, ladies and gentlemen, we got a harmonica player out there. He plays with the Jonathan Winters Blues Band. <laughs> Ron Parrish, come on up here. <laughs> and, and afterwards he would say i know your name is paris but i i you know i i, I know it's john i i'm 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 sorry you know i, I don't know what came over me i don't know why i call you ron you know so that went on for months and i said let's call me whatever you want just get me up there. I'm happy to play with you. It's an honor, you know. Right. So that it eventually evolved into this routine where almost every time I showed up, he would get me up to sit in. And then he started playing at, at 
the Iridium when Fat Tuesdays shut down. And uh, then it really became a shtick. You know, he, I became one of the regulars. And uh, I got to play with a lot of people through less. I mean, uh, Larry Carlton, there, I think there's video of us and Jimmy Vaughn, Les got me up with him and, and David Grisman the mandolin genius and, and on and on, you know, and just a lot of, you know, I got the uptown horns down to sit in with Les on his birthday one year. And, and, um, you know, his friendship was, I can't tell you how valuable that was just, you know, and, you know, like, like Johnny, like Bo, like Bo Diddley, like Les, you know, all these guys I worked with, I never sat down and say, hey, man, how do you do that riff? Or how, how do you make that chord? Or, you know, what are the changes for this? It was just, I, it was really old school. It was from working with the guy and hearing him play every night, you just absorb that stuff, you know, and I'm very grateful to that. I mean, I just imagine all those great jazz players in those big bands, you know, they didn't have YouTube. They didn't have online instruction courses. They were on the road with other musicians, saying, right. you know, jamming and trading licks and really learning on the job. And and I was fortunate to have that experience. You know, it's priceless. And now when I go on YouTube, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, you're on there doing your thing, which is great. Right. And oftentimes I'll sit with my guitar in my lap you know, watching you or watching Jeff Beck or watching, you know, Hendrix or what, Oh, that's how you do that chord or that, you know, just, just refreshing stuff that I already know. And, you know, just reiterating it because it's interesting, you know, Johnny would throw in a Hendrix tune once in a while. And, you know, just as an example, I'm pretty sure he would do Foxy Lady and E because it had the low E and he could make that, sharp nine chord up the neck you know and you know hendrix did it in f sharp so he could exactly. get the open e f sharp thumb thing right and, and you know so you know guys would do their own take on stuff you know and uh that was an insight you know to to see how johnny would approach a hendrix tune you know and and the, to see how i mean the way he would approach blues tunes, you know, I mean, Johnny, once again, Hideaway, a milestone tune. Every guitar player should know Hideaway. I mean, it's, right. it's just, uh, it's filled with cool stuff. So, you know, Johnny played it open E, like Freddie King did, you know, did it on the high E. Clapton played it up the neck on the G, did it in that third up. And so that was like, a, a, you know, a signpost. You know, you could always tell the real guys that learned Hideaway off the Freddie King record or right. the guys who learned it after the Clapton record yeah, yeah. album. Right. You know, that that's what separated the men from the boys. Right. <laughs> well, plus Freddie's, Freddie's got that, that e, low E string droning. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think Freddie played with a thumb pick and a finger pick. Right. Yeah. Am I right? You are right indeed. And that's really old school, you know. And Johnny played with a thumb pick. Right. You know? And and uh, that was that was a whole other story, man. There are some stories like Johnny. I remember one time 
Johnny reached down at the end of a set to shake hands with a fan and the guy grabbed his thumb pick and ran off into the crowd. And Johnny had to send his roadie off after the guy to get the pick because it was the last of his Gibson thumb picks. He said he bought a gross of them in, in the 60s and that was the last one left. Oh, <laughs> and, and, and you know, we, we tried finding him stuff, you know, on the road and little by little, you know, we'd find new old stock. But, you know, that was his thing. And if he didn't have that, Easy. it was... There was no show. <laughs> you know, as I think of it, wasn't there a story that like Johnny was talking with Hendrix and Johnny was saying how maybe I want to get into some more like progressive music or so on and so forth. And Jimmy said, no, no, no. You need to just do blues. That, that, that may be. That may be. I mean, there's that great track of them doing the things I used to do. Uh, right. That uh, um, Was it Guitar Slim, I think? Right. Yeah. And, and Ray Charles has arranged that and plays piano on that. I found out. Ah, interesting. But on the original, but you know, I think the band it's, uh, uh, the Johnny and Jimmy on guitars and Steve stills on bass ah. on that recording. <clears throat> and, um, you know, Johnny's playing slide and apparently Jimmy loved Johnny's slide plan and was in awe of, you know, that's what cemented their friendship because, you know, Johnny loved Jimmy's plan. Right. And, and uh, you know, as I said, we'd throw in Hendrix tunes and, you know, here and there we did Manic Depression with Johnny one night. It was great. <laughs> Wild. It's great. You know, <clears throat> and I'll tell you, I have a lot of, the, you know, I, I, I'm in this no man's land about what to do with all this archive i have i mean you see all these these tapes and and right. cassettes and videos and and i have over 300 live johnny winter gigs on cassette oh man and uh i don't know if it'll ever see the light of day because it it would have to be digitized right and it'd have to be uh edited and uh and then there's the legalities of it because you'd have to get approval from the estate and Johnny's gone. And, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, I mean, I could post some of this stuff on YouTube if I knew how, right. But, uh, but I, I, I often think of maybe I could find somebody that would be interested in buying it from me and doing all the gymnastics of dealing with the, the red tape of it. Yeah. The digitizing. You know, I would love yeah. people to hear this stuff. You know, partially because I'm on it and Johnny's playing his butt off. And it was a period in the late 70s through the 80s where Johnny was on fire. I mean, even on a bad night, he was scary good. And and there were very few bad nights. And on a stellar night, it was, he was like from another planet. Right. How, how good he was playing. And, and uh, I would love for people to hear that because a lot of people think of Johnny – you know, especially younger musicians have seen him in the last, you know, 10, 15 years when he right. he was still Johnny Winter, but it wasn't that it old wasn't, fire. Exactly. Exactly. I understand. You know, yeah. And uh, I'm really proud of the fact that, that I got to work with him in that time period, you know, because uh, even in the 70s, before I got to, to work with him, he was scary. No. Yes, absolutely. No doubt about it. And, you know, as I say, he'd throw in a Hendrix tune, he'd throw in a country tune. We would often end with a, he had this great medley of uh, 
what is it under the golden eagle under the oh, yeah, yeah. double eagle i think yeah, under the double yeah and and wildwood flower and he would do a medley of those just to to chill people out you know after the second encore he wanted to get off and get his dinner and he would start playing this this two beat thing and it was it, he would be playing this you know carter family you know flattened scrugs kind of stuff at a hundred miles an hour and nailing it you know so he 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 had all those bases covered and you know and you know i left the band i mean johnny knew that i wanted to do my own thing and he would often let me play guitar and he would play bass and you know that was just a thrill for me to to be able to do my thing and and have johnny winter play bass for me you know right that, that was insane when i think about it but you know, eventually, you know, I just wanted to get my foot in the water doing my thing. And he was cool with that. I mean, we stayed friends right until the end. I sat in with him on harmonica BBs just a few months before he passed. And it, he was thrilled to see me. And it was he said it was great to play together. And I loved the guy. He was just a just a treasure. So deep. And and. Um, you know, so I, I did my band, you know, we played Dan Lynch's in the village and Johnny Johnson sat in and Bobby Keys sat in and George Thurgood sat in and, and the Nighthawks came and sat in and, you know, that, that we did that for years. We did one Saturday a month for like 12, 15 years, every year, you know, I'd come off the road, do my own band. We played Dan Lynch's and Dan Lynch's was like, what I imagined the Beatles probably went through in Hamburg. We would play from 10 o'clock until four in the morning. Oh, good Lord. And often with no break, we would take a bathroom break at like one, you know, but we, the thing was that the more you kept the audience and the more they drank, we got a cut of the bar. So, ah. so if we were playing and people hung out and stayed and listened, we got, we got the door, we got a cut of the bar and we could pass the tip jar. So Lynch has really kept me afloat for a long time. And then when that closed, there was Chicago Blues, there was Manny's Car Wash, there you know, there was a really vibrant club scene still even in the 90s in New York. And then I lucked into this BB King's thing and you know, that was a godsend, you know. And then I got to play Summerfest every once in a while. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you, Bob and, and Vic and all the gang, you know. It's coming up again. Yeah. Yeah. I got a message from Vic. I don't know if I'll make it, but uh, I'll be there in spirit and maybe I can be there in the flesh. You know, who knows? We, we shall see. But you and I, th thank you so much for sitting in those few times, man. It no, was, it's always a pleasure. It was it was a thrill. I think we did Voodoo Child a couple of times. I think we may. Have, yeah, I think we did. And uh, to do that with you, it's, uh, you know, knowing your Hendrix leanings. I mean, you know, people, I'm sure you get this. People ask, you know, who were your influences? How, how do you say who your, your, even your five favorite guitarists? How, well, I just, I just had to do a, a thing for a true fire and, and part of the thing that they do, you know, the video lesson thing. And they're like, well, we do this thing called guitar, your, your guitar heroes. And I had to narrow it down to six <laughs> and, and it was very difficult, obviously, you know, so. Uh, but I, Hendrix was number one yeah. and then I, and then I had to do Clapton cause creamier Clapton and blues breaker Clapton. I mean, mm -hmm. 
that was my gateway drug to a lot of people. And then Albert King, you know, it was, it was hard to say whether BB King or Albert, I what it should have had them both, but you know, well, I you thought, put well, on all three Kings. That's one guy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's what I should have done. That's one favorite guy. <laughs> exactly. And then I, then I picked Albert Lee cause that was my kind of gateway drug into all that. And then Roy Buchanan. And then it was yeah, like, well, why oh. didn't you do, why didn't you do Danny Gatton? It's like, well, I got into Danny later and you, you know, it's like, you can't win, but, um, it, it's hard because you know you there's so many people in the in the stew that that it's hard but. yeah well you know those people you mentioned i mean certainly hendrix is in the top and not only as a guitar player but jimmy was the whole package right i mean great performer great songwriter you know great singer for what he did i mean he right you know i know he from all accounts was very shy about his singing but look at the guys he worked with, you know, Wilson Pickett and Little Richard. I mean, you know, how do you sing that well? You know, he, and so I'm sure he was he was uh, like uh, eclipsed by those guys. But, um, you know, for what Hendrix and, you know, you can't imagine Paul Rogers really singing a Hendrix song or or or, or um, you know, uh Frank Sinatra singing a Hendrix song. Right. <laughs> you know, Jimmy had the voice for what he did, and, and it, it was beautiful. It was really beautiful. So, and then other influences. I mean, you know, Freddie King certainly, and Danny was. You know, I got to jam with Danny once. I got to sit in with him and Robert Gordon one time. But I was friendly with Danny. You know, he he knew me, and and our friendship started because a, a buddy of mine from Milwaukee was living in in D.C when I played with Johnny and I had a night off and I called my buddy from Milwaukee and I said, you know about Danny Gatton? He says, yeah, he's a local guy. Right. And I said, yeah, he's, I said, see if you can find out where he's playing. So this was early eighties, I think. And my buddy found out that Danny had a steady gig in DC at an Irish bar, kind of like Dan Lynch's was in New York. Right. And I went with my buddy and he had, Danny had just done that unfinished, you know, self-produced record. Unfinished business, yeah. Great record. Yeah. And, you know, we sat and watched Danny Gatton with his trio bring up all these incredible people. And at one point, I think he had like four or five horn players. And he's playing like TV show themes and hillbilly tunes and rock and roll tunes and blues tunes and, right. and you know, classical songs and, you know, Coltrane and, and Miles Davis. And right. <laughs> just, you know, Danny, I mean, he was just just a guitarist guitarist and right. you know i went up to the bandstand and i i bought i think i bought seven or eight copies of the lp because i wanted to give johnny one i wanted to give our drummer one i wanted to give my buddy one for bringing me to the gig and i wanted to have one for myself and you know so the next time i saw danny in new york he said hey man how you doing you're that guy that bought all those records from me <laughs> <laughs> so that started our friendship and 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 just a wonderful guy and there's a great clip of him sitting in with less it's kind of hard to find on youtube because the title doesn't you know that's the the weird thing about youtube you know the title doesn't always go with the clip but i was there that night and less brought danny up and so, and Lou Paulo, Les's great guitar player, rhythm guitar player, hands Danny, goes to hand Danny his guitar so he and Les can jam together. And Les 
jumps in with his guitar and hands Danny his guitar and starts to get off the stage. And Danny is like, hey, Les, where are you going? Les goes, I'm going to the bar and have a drink. You, you play with the fellas. <laughs> yeah. So Danny's looking at this guitar and he yells out, hey, Les, how, how do I make this thing sound like a Telecaster? <laughs> and Les turns around and he like pinches Danny's cheek like, you, you rascal, you know. So Danny does this incredible swing blues that just blows everybody's mind. And, and uh, you know, they never really got to play together, although I think they did at one time or another. But, you know, Les did this with me one night because I had my palm pedal telly with me. And I didn't want to leave it at the bar when he called me up, so I dragged it up with me. And he turns the Les turns the audience and says, "Oh, he wants to play the guitar now," you know, because <laughs> he usually called me up to play harp. Right. So I said, "Well, actually, Les, if it's cool with you, I'd love to do this song with you. It's a Chuck Berry number that Chuck Berry was influenced by by Floyd Smith." you know, the great guitar steel player. Right. And, and, and uh, Chuck loved Floyd Smith. And you said you knew Lloyd, Floyd Smith. And he said, oh yeah, me and Charlie Christian used to go up to Harlem and, and we hung out with Floyd Smith, you know. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking, Les knew Charlie Christian. They used to hang out and jam, you know. I mean, that, you know, unbelievable. But anyway, Les pulled the same thing. He unplugs his guitar, hands me the plug, and says, "You got you play with the fellas." Ah. You know, I said, "Well," and because I had this vision of of this sort of full circle thing, how cool it would be, you know, if I could play this Floyd Smith Chuck Berry instrumental with Les, you know, because Les knew Floyd Smith right. and Chuck loved Les too, and I thought, boy, this will be like a connection, you know but it wasn't meant to be. But anyway, the end of that set, a buddy of mine comes up to me, says, I'm here with a friend who wants to meet you, drags me over, and it's Billy Gibbons. Ah. And Billy looks up at me and goes, that was deep feeling you were playing, right? I said, yeah. He says, man, I've been lusting after playing that tune for years. I dug that. He said, have a seat. So I got friendly with Billy, you know, and, and then we met at the Harley... 90th when i was in town for that and yeah, yeah yeah and uh you know he invited me up to his room he played me these outtakes of elmore james and jimmy reed that he had on his ghetto blaster and you know to, he's in a, you've you've met billy right i not not never really hung out with him at all i i've just met him one time like in passing unfortunately i've never been able to hang astounding character just unbelievable yeah, he's a he's a character without doubt, and and I love I love his playing, obviously. Oh, phenomenal, phenomenal! You know, I'll tell you, you know that uh, we didn't talk about Bo, but I don't know how much time we got left. But uh, you know, that was another treat for me. You know, I mean, favorite guitar players Chuck and Hendrix, obviously, I never could have jammed with because I was too afraid to when he played the scene, and you know, when I got a, a little more self-confidence he was gone but uh, right. you know i got to play with Les, one of my hugest influences and getting to work with bo was really a treat and you know you were you were asking me about it uh was johnny loud you know right. 
and and what and we started talking about equipment. I mean, you know, I played with Link. He would request two twins, and he would crank them and run it through a Dynacomp MXR Dynacomp, cranked. So it was ripping loud. And then I worked with Johnny, and it was a Music Man twin and a Music Man four by twelve, you know, wide up together, ripping loud. And I, I worked with Bo. He had a, a JC. What was it? Uh, JC JC one twenty. Yeah, Roland, and he would crank that, and that was ripping loud. And I worked with Mick Taylor for several months and playing guitar and harp and singing with Mick. And he'd have a, a Marshall half stack and a twin hooked together, and that was ripping loud. Good so I God. worked with all these great loud guitar players. So when I would do my little gigs, you know, around New York, I'd get yelled at, and I and I would think to myself. People don't even know what loud is. You know, I'm right. playing through a deluxe reverb or 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 a Princeton, you know, or whatever, right. and and you know, <laughs> I'm getting yelled at for playing loud. And I, what? So, well, how, but how loud was Hendrix at the scene? Pretty loud, and I was like maybe in the third or fourth seating. You know, there were tables, you know, and I was pretty close to the front, and it was loud. I mean, it was a wall of sun amps, you know. Uh, and um, I think he had 200-watt heads, and Noel had 200-watt heads, and they each had, like, six or eight 215 cabinets, you know. And it was loud, but it didn't seem that loud, you know. It, it, and I think about that often, Greg, because, you know, I think, was, was it that we were younger and we could tolerate that volume? You know, our ears weren't as damaged. You know, right, or, right, right. Or, or was it something in the air? Maybe you know there was, you know, the molecules absorbed the sound differently. Um, but I think it was just the sound was. It wasn't a, an unpleasant loud. You know, it was Hendrix. You know, right. And you, you saw Cream too, right? And they were loud. I mean, they each had double Marshall stacks. You know, and and. Uh, you know, once again, thank you to the Balistreris for having the scene in Milwaukee. That was right. like the I saw Elvin Bishop with with Butterfield and uh, and the horn section with with uh, Sanborn and oh yeah exactly. And yeah, I yeah. saw Mick Taylor. You know, once again, if somebody would have said, you know, you're going to be playing with this guy in in ten years, you know, I would have said no. You know, here he was with Mayo, and people were talking about this young guy on guitar with John Mayall. He was, what, 18, 19 years old? Right, 18, I think. And the rumor was that the bass player was 17, you know? So, <laughs> you know, I don't remember exactly, but, you know, everybody played the scene. I saw the mothers there. and, and uh, Did you see the Allman Brothers there? I didn't. I, I didn't. Uh, I never got, I don't think I ever got to see the Almonds with, with, with Dwayne. Yeah. But you know, we when I was with Johnny, we did a bunch of shows over the years with with the with either the Greg Allman Band or the Reformed Allman Brothers, and I got to sit in with the Greg Allman Band. You know, we we did uh, I think we did One Way Out or or Statesboro Blues, and I played harp. You know, so I got to know Danny Toller and those guys. Oh, he's a great guy. Oh, wonderful guy, man. He, God bless him. You know, he, and great player. 
Oh, fantastic. That tone was just devastating. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's funny because as close as I got with Les, I I never could get close to the Les Paul guitar. I've owned owned probably three or four Les Pauls in in my day and wound up selling all of them because they're short scale, you know. Okay, I got you. I always felt more comfortable with a Fender scale. And I know they make a full scale Les Paul, but they're like five grand. (laughs) (laughs) And you can never find them used because guys that buy those, they keep them, you know, they're collectible. So um, that's a whole other subject, the whole guitar owners thing, you know. Right, right, right. (laughs) Buy up these great instruments that should be played and they're sitting on somebody's wall, you know. Yeah, such is such is the way. Do you, do you still have a, a connection with Fender? You know, I I mean I still know a bunch of guys there. I don't really I don't do anything for them anymore. I um, mean, if you need gear or if you need uh, Yeah, if I need something I I I can That's I, I great. people I can call, but That's great. Um yeah, but it's uh it's an interesting thing. You know, I've got quite a few different specimens these days but you know they go and they come they come and they go <laughs> well you're, you're very fortunate that you've had a chance to experiment with all these different things and you know what what sounds you can get here and there it's 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 great i mean it's it's harder to do these days for you know i mean uh i, I mentioned doug yankis with with his band soup from wisconsin right you know initially he was a Les paul player when I first started seeing them. And then at one point I saw him play a Strat and then he had a Firebird seven. And that was one of the reasons I bought a Firebird was because Doug, not so much that Johnny had a Firebird, but that Doug had a Firebird. I wanted to get a Firebird. And then when I found out Johnny played Firebirds, that was like another connection, you know? Right. You know, and Johnny actually had had dinner with us one time. He and his wife came over, and I let him play my Firebird, and and he liked it. You know, so, <laughs> but but I sold. I wound up selling that. You know, I had to pay the rent. You know, I, mean, I understand. I, I I unfortunately have very. I don't think I have any vintage guitars left. You know, I, I and I've had some beauties. Sure. You know, Jeff Dagenhart helped me find a, a Switchmaster. Oh. And that would that was that was a great little Milwaukee story, because I was playing with Johnny uh, on the South Side at some club, and we were on tour. And I called Jeff and invited him to the gig, and I just happened to mention, I said, Jeff, do you know anybody that's got a Switchmaster? And Jeff goes, a Switchmaster? <laughs> yeah, there's a guy out in Oconomowoc. He's got a music store. He's got one on the wall. So the next day, Jeff was good enough to drive me out to Oconomowoc, and I bought the Switchmaster. Oh, no kidding. I suppose back then you got it for relatively inexpensive. Well, at that time, I think I paid like 1700 for it, which was a ton of money for me. Right. Right, but right. those things are going for five ten grand now right exactly and it didn't have the original pafs which uh i didn't care about it had you know nice humbuckers in there and still the original gold covers right and uh and the switch was kind of funky but i found a guy that fixed the switch for me and and uh, wound up selling that i think for five grand so that was a nice investment but i miss it you know that you know and uh West Dallas music when we were in the Chevelles and we were in the Walkers and the Ox. I mean, they, Doug Tank at West Dallas got us 
our connection with Sun Amps when I was oh, okay. with the Ox. And I used to play through the two dual 15 cabinets and the 2000 S head and Metzger had a 1200 S head. And we were, we were in fat city, man. You know, we had that sun stuff. Well, listen, we could probably talk for three hours, but we should probably wrap it up. It's been so fun talking with you, John. Thanks for sharing all these fantastic stories. Well, I don't get to do this that often, and it's really a treat, Greg. I mean, it's a treat to talk to you anyway, and it's, and I love talking about th this uh, rock and roll hist history. Is this rock and roll history? I don't yeah, know. absolutely. It is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean... Uh, you know, we mentioned we, the other day we were talking about record sales and and trying to get your stuff out there. And you said, "Yeah, you got to hit people over the head with this stuff." You know, people don't <laughs> don't do their homework. So people get out there do do your homework. All the materials are there, man. It's you know, Absolutely. YouTube and and it's just you know, it's priceless what we're uh, what we have access to and and. You know, you can go check out Les. You can go check out Les's influence, Django Reinhardt. Exactly. Yep. And uh, you know, Eddie Lang, and and uh, uh, I mean, just so much, so many great, great influences out there. You know, and there are a lot of young players coming up, like yourself. You know, you're you're still a, a relatively young man. I'd like to think so. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, you got a whole career ahead. You know, in, in addition to what you've been doing already, already, it's great. Well, thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate it. Let us talk soon. You take care of yourself and hopefully see you back here sooner than later. And if nothing else, you know, visit me on, on uh, www.jonparis.com. You know? Yes, indeed. We can carry on there or Facebook or whatever. I love it. I love it all. Thank you, my friend. We'll talk soon. Thank you so much, Greg. And give my love to everybody in Milwaukee. I will absolutely do that. Thank you, John. We'll see you later. Love you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Chewing the Gristle. We certainly do appreciate it. On behalf of Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and our friends at Fishman Transducers, we say, don't be a stranger now. Keep on coming back. We're going to keep on giving her. <laughs>